Hello, and thanks for visiting the Feed the Ball Salon, a Golf Digest production. I'm Derek Duncan, Associate Editor for Architecture at Golf Digest. This is Volume 10, the 10th episode I and my co-host and golf course builder Jim Urbina have recorded since the coronavirus pandemic started. These indeed have been strange times. It was always assumed that the salon talks would eventually slow down as Jim and I and our prospective guests got back to work and travel, and I'd eventually resume standard Feed the Ball podcasts. That was beginning to look to be the case a few weeks ago. But now with the virus rebounding and many states closing back up, who knows? We may all be housebound again, and if that's the case, there could be more salons coming up. At any rate, as a program note, the salon should continue intermittently as scheduling allows, and there will be a new regular Feed the Ball podcast coming soon, as well as another salon volume coming in a few weeks featuring Dana Fry. In this volume, we have Reese Jones, who has been as significant a figure in golf design as there's been in the last, oh, 50 plus years. He's always a pleasure to talk to, and in this conversation, we get details about some unique courses like Cascada outside of Las Vegas and the Creek Course at Hammock Dunes in Florida that usually don't get the same press, or at least the same podcast press, as some of his better-known designs. Last thing, you could help the show by subscribing to it through your favorite podcast provider and giving it a rating and review, and also following me at FeedTheBall on Twitter and Instagram. Email me at Derek underscore Duncan at Discovery.com with questions or comments. And now for the part you've been waiting for, this is Jim Urbina and I speaking with Reese Jones. You know, Derek, when we talk about golf course architecture, I think to myself, how does the player perceive what we throw out there, what we interject into the design, what we are thinking, and does he think the same way that, that we do? If you don't mind, I'd like to read this quote from Mr. John Lowe that was in Bernard Darwin's book, and I think it has to do with how we perceive golfers and what they may think about our design. So if you don't mind, please do. And Derek, I I quote this from Mr. John Lowe. I quote for golf at its best should be a contest of risks. The fine player should on his way round the links be just slipping past the bunkers, gaining every yard he can. Conquering by the confidence of his own far and sure play. The less skillful player should wreck himself either by attempting risks, which are beyond his skill, or by being compelled to lose ground through giving the bunkers a wide berth. Every, end quote, every player plays the game differently. I always talk about playing fun for, for, for fun a match play but yet during my round of golf and i think you do the same thing derek you contemplate every shot whether to risk or to stay clear and i think john lowe talks about that and today talking with mr reese jones i want to ask him about does he think about every level of player as we all do and derek do you attempt the risk or do you are you willing to lose ground by giving these bunkers a wide berth? How interesting 
that quote was. How interesting it is when you get an opportunity to play a golf course that asks those questions. You know, so so often we play golf courses where, you know, you're just trying to hit the ball straight, get it down the middle <laughs> of the fairway. And there really is, maybe there's one bunker flanking to the right or to the left that you kind of have to, you don't want to go on that. But it's not really asking you to, to contemplate or to have to make that essential decision, that decision that tests how confident you are in your swing that day, how confident you are in your ability to pull off a shot over, around, how close. Those are decisions that, unfortunately, we're not asked as often as we would like. I think most golfers find that type of golf more rewarding and, and more stimulating for sure. And it's the kind of golf that, that breeds uh, repeat play and uh, in a heightened level of interaction with the golf course. But really, Jim, what I thought about when you were reading that quote was talking about risk, high flying, risk reward. That is the essence of Robert Trent Jones, the heroic school of architecture, which, you know, you can debate whether that was something new that he created or whether that's just a, a component, a subcategory of classical strategy. But he certainly popularized it. And he certainly built holes, Jim, where you really had to contemplate and make a decision how far down the fairway, how much of that diagonal hazard do you want to bite off? Because you could play a really conservative shot and then have a more long and difficult shot after that, or you could really be a tiger player and try to just max out and go for it, with the result being if you don't pull it off, you're screwed. So that one, that is, um, that was something that Robert Trent Jones, Reese's father really developed that and built holds that took full measure of your confidence. And they always existed, but he certainly popularized it and built some really fantastic flamboyant examples of that style of golf hole. And you know what I think about my, all the time I've attempted and I've had risk and I've thought, you know, I'm not going to challenge that bunker. I'll give it wide berth. These guys, the golden age, Mr. John Lowe, talking about how you play the game. And nothing has changed 120 years later. And we're still thinking about conquering. And we're still thinking about far and sure play. And Mr. Jones, although I have not seen a lot of seniors golf courses i've seen a few reese jones courses one of my favorites one of my favorites palma valley in in southern california right. robert trent jones senior i love that golf course uh -huh. i really do and i always thought that if anybody was taking that theme way back when mr jones was doing that i'm curious to see if if when we talk to reese today Will Reese say, I built on that, I steered away from that, or I find it all compelling and I interjected it when I felt it need be. So I love the quote. I think it's applicable. I could hardly wait to talk to Reese. Likewise. The, the, the subtext to this also is, and anybody who listens to me on these podcasts over the years knows I, I talk and have spoken a lot about Robert Trent Jones, and I find it a, a valuable study. And part of it is a reaction against this knee-jerk um, reaction 
uh, sort of that that pigeonholes RTJ into a very narrow style of design. When I find the more I learn about his work and the more I peel back the layers and actually look at what he actually built in the moment that he built it, I actually find it's it's often quite different than how the course has matured or what the reputation is. You know, he built so many courses and the the knock on him was they were narrow and long and difficult and that's the kind of golf course he built. And he certainly did build golf courses like that, often for uh often like like Pete Dye, you know, he's building them for a specific purpose to test the the modern game, the the professional player who was hitting the ball extremely high and extremely long. This was kind of the one way to challenge them. But he also built hundreds of golf courses, Jim, that you know, were designed for for everybody to play. And you know that there's a I don't think he gets enough credit uh for being an innovator of his era. You know, he was coming out of, of World War II especially, even though he built golf courses back into the nineteen thirties. Coming out of World War II, the, the world was ready for something different. The demands of golf were different. The professional player was was different than it was going into the war and before the Depression. He was the man of, of the times, and he was giving the public what they wanted, as we talk about often. And he was doing some very innovative things. And I don't think he gets enough credit for, for, for his creations. We look back on something like the long runway tees. Uh, or, or the the large greens with distinct pinnable sections. Those were those were innovative concepts. Those were really cutting edge modern concepts. And because so many other people started doing that and kind of ripping him off, it, it, he sort of gets a, a reputation nowadays retrospectively as you know being kind of a generic designer too often. I think that's a, a retroactive value judgment we're placing on him. It's like if if you like cars in 1960 the new car that came out was fantastic it was modern it was popular it was exciting it was fresh it was new we look back on now we have our our 2020 bmws or teslas or whatever (laughs) that's 1960 car doesn't look that sophisticated or that interesting but it was at the time and and the engineers who who designed and built that were doing some really courageous and 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 wonderful artistic things and robert Trent jones is, is is no different than that we just choose to value other things kind of above him and we'll and like you said we'll talk to about this and kind of get his try to get his his opinion on that and, and how he connects to the legacy of his father if we can well you got me there Derek uh, you got me with the all the cars in the 60s were the same uh, <laughs> <laughs> you, and you know I just needed to look I just needed to look harder and I needed to explore more and when I talk about Palma Valley uh, another golf course I like uh the Blue Course of the Air Force Academy, another Robert yes, Jones Jr. golf course. that's a wonderful course. golf course. A wonderful golf course. And so maybe the 60s and 70s and 80s weren't all the same looking car. Maybe you just had to look harder to find those in, 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 the, in the sea of, of, of cars that, that were mass produced. I agree. I agree. And like we said, we're going to bring Reese on here in a moment and, and get his perspectives on that and many other things. I'm looking forward to it, Jim. And I know you are too. This is a real treat to be able to talk to somebody like Reese Jones, who has been doing this for so long. He's had such a storied professional career. He's he's touched so many different places. He's left a, a huge mark on everyday golf, club golf, major championship golf. So um, we're going to get around to as much as this as we can. Are you ready to talk to Reese? Let's do it. All right, here we go. Well, I, 
I just remember the times that we went around with Garrett Boddington and Mike Vascucci when you were the the man on Sabonic, and uh, I really admired your work. Um, it's, a, it's just a great place. Well, thank you for that, Reese. I know that Garrett is a big fan of yours, and uh, I, of, I often wondered if I could put up with, with Garrett. Uh, you have been able to do it for years, and I learned how to do it. <laughs> yeah, but he was a young man when I uh, – he was scared of me in the beginning. <laughs> so I sort of had him where I wanted him. <laughs> well, you're lucky because he, uh, uh, Garrett and I went around several times at Sabonic, but in the end, you know how hard these things are to build. In the end, our goal was the same. Well, you had an, a unique situation. Uh, you had three designers to work with. And have you ever had that <laughs> problem in your life? Oh, sure. Uh Mackenzie had the same problems, you know. And I think about Marion Hollins and, and, and the people at Cypress Point. Uh, that's my only thing that I could think of. Do you have any others? No, but I think uh, generally, um, I think to some degree when we were building the real estate development golf courses, um, the, the real estate developers were not golfers, so they kind of let us do our thing. Uh, but in these remodeling, this remodeling era, I think we have a lot more people that uh, have knowledge and ideas. And, and as golf architects, uh, we need to listen to them as the past architects had to do um, even a hundred years ago. Well, you know, Reese, that brings up a good point. If, and if you don't mind, I would start with that, that question. Did you always feel compelled? And I don't mean to bring your father into this question, but it's probably applicable did you always feel compelled and your father feel compelled to listen as well as educate or in that era of your father and your beginning your career that you had to at least show your side before anybody uh, uh, was allowed to uh, suggest? Well, that's, that's uh, interesting. Every project is different, you know, Jim, uh, and um, I, I really believe when I did Cragburn in Buffalo, New York, which uh, is a wonderful golf course uh, that a, the Goodyear family was building. Um, and um, Bobby Goodyear had a lot of ideas. And so I, that was, I was in my early 30s and I learned then uh, how much a knowledgeable golfer could add to a project. And I've always considered um the, the those ideas from uh, knowledgeable people to be worth listening to and and many times implementing and it doesn't always, it doesn't have to be your idea but it has to be a good idea to put it on the ground and then if it is a good idea it'll last for a long time did you think that that people were trying to and i felt this sometimes in in some of the earlier projects did you feel that people were trying to at least make a statement about their in their intentions, or were they just trying to check your your convictions as far as what you were going to build for them? Um, well, that probably it, it depends uh, on the person, but <clears throat> in regard to Cragburn, 
um, Bobby Goodyear was a member of Augusta. So there was a major Augusta national influence in his head uh, that he passed along to me. Um, and I was probably there every week. So um, and, and we built the old green at number eight. Um, that was the old green. They reinstituted it, but it had been taken out by Byron Nelson and Joe Finger. And we got the old plans of the old number eight green and, and um, really basically copied that green uh, because he loved it so much as a member of Augusta. He was a member there since 1953. He's passed away, though. Um, and then years later, we got together. And um, as you know, as you get older, we go back and look at a golf person. Instead of just having mounds, we added bunkers. So um, we, we sort of altered that original idea. Do you think that owners – I've been very fortunate, Reese, as you know, have had the chance to work with Mr. Kaiser on two pro two projects. Did you, in, at the beginning of your career and, and now where you're at today, did you value the ownership as the key to to greatness? If that if that's what the if that was the end goal, or did you value the owner as a friend? Did you value the owner as a, a somebody that you were going to get along with and, and create your creations. How important was that owner to you? Well, I, I well, people ask me, you know, how do you choose your jobs? Is it by the budget? Is it by the site? And I said, no, it's by the owner. Uh, the best jobs are when you have the best owners <clears throat> like ocean forest with Bill Jones. And, and we did that together. And Davis love would wander around and, and uh, commits with us at times. Um, <clears throat> also Atlantic, with Lowell Shulman, he became a bosom buddy of mine, as did Dick Maslow at Huntsville. So, and, and I made him pay a million dollars to get some extra land to have a, a top golf course. And it, it um, finished 101 in the top 100 several times. It never broke into your list there, but maybe someday <laughs> it will. <clears throat> Those are some pretty good sites, though, so the land helps. Oh, yeah. And then uh, at Cascada in Las Vegas, uh, Danny Wade, the CEO of MGM Grand, uh, went out with me 22 times. I made uh, like 30 visits and 22 of those visits. He went out on the site and he was a busy guy. He had to run the whole MGM operation. But and then at the end of the project, he wanted dog leg the 18th hole. It was all solid rock. And so a million dollars later, we had a dog leg instead of a straight hole. But that was his influence. And I think, as you know, Jim, and I think I was talking to Derek earlier, um, your influence on the game, you're part of the team, and this is all a major team effort. And those of us who design golf courses and have been recognized as golf course architects, that we're the name they put on a golf course, but there's multiple people that have involved in the success of one. I can't disagree. I, I, can't, I can't disagree with that statement. And it's funny you bring up Cascada because – you remember me calling your office wanting to, to look at the golf course because at that time I was, I was looking at shadow Creek. I was looking at Cascada and I was trying to find that what people were looking for opposite of when I had just finished the, the golf course at, at Bandon Dunes resort, Pacific Dunes. And I saw shadow Creek for the first time. And I went and saw Cascada unbelievable sights unbelievable views, dramatic. Was Cascada trying to compete with Shadow Creek or was were you just simply trying to maximize that landform? 
No, you're absolutely right. Cascada, <clears throat> when MGM built it, they wanted to compete with Bellagio. And um, uh, Shadow Creek, is they, they dropped the desert. <clears throat> um, Danny Wade's idea was to find a desert site and build a desert Shadow Creek. And uh, basically, I call that a, a desert lynx because of all the rock outcrops and how we had to weave the holes between them. It almost looks like they're dunes, practically. And uh, we flew all over the greater Las Vegas area in a helicopter just to find the best land. And we found that land in Boulder City and leased it from the city. Um, and um, it, I think we did that same thing at Quintero outside of uh, Phoenix. Uh, those were the days where we looked for the absolute best sites, as Mr. Kaiser's done, too, um, and built on the best site, which gives you an opportunity to have a great golf course. And Derek, when I saw Cascada and, and I saw Shadow Creek, I just I just was in awe of 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 the the holes individually, what they did for the owners, for the opportunity for the designer, uh, obviously Mr. Fazio and, and Reese at Cascada. But I thought to myself, and I'll, I'll be honest with you, Reese, did you feel compelled? That you was there was only one way in and out into that in, into that property and one way out because I couldn't find another way. No, the, <clears throat> we had the, we had that was an easement, and uh, there was only one way in. In fact, <clears throat> at one point, if we hadn't got an easement there, there was so much money in Las Vegas they were talking about helicoptering everybody into the site. <laughs> uh, so uh, uh, we were lucky we got those that, are the days. That, yeah, and that's not our land where that road comes in. That's what I thought. It was like, how did they get this in here as compared to the property they were working on? Yeah, but we it, it worked out well because uh, the city of uh, Boulder City owned that land. We just had to, to get, be granted the easement. Originally, that was going to be 36 holes of golf. There was another 18 holes up there? Wow. Yeah, the, the, to the right of the entrance road, another another 18. What, and just golf just kind of faded at that time? Um, no, that's, you know, uh, everything changes in Las Vegas very quickly. And uh, ultimately, um, Bellagio was uh, taken over by MGM. And so MGM didn't need their golf course anymore, so they sold it to Caesars. Got it. There's, there's golf courses like commodities out there. They just <laughs> change hands. Those are like, we're talking about some really incredible engineering projects, Reese. Yes, for sure. Yeah. I'm wondering, is it as a project like Cascada, which and you could elaborate on this, but it, I'm imagining that that took a lot of uh, engineering and a, a lot of money and a lot of uh, know-how to build. Is a project like that more rewarding for you as a designer than getting something where you are are required to do less, you know, cause it's a chance for you to like really show a level of a level of expertise that it, it takes years and years and years to accrue. Well, there are holes where it's not there. I mean, there are jobs where it's not hard to find the holes. Um, but at uh, Cascada, before we made the deal with the city of Boulder city, we had to make sure we could fit 18 holes in it because as Jim could allude to, it's a very, very rugged piece of ground, and it has these valleys through it where we had to build the golf holes. Um, but I think uh, you, you really do get a great deal of pleasure out of all of them. I, I mean, I 
I, I sincerely have a great deal of pleasure out of some of the worst sites I've ever worked on that I turned into really great golf courses. Uh, but I think you get, it's harder. And Jim can tell you, if you have a great site like Cascada or Quintero, you just can't mess it up. Mm-hmm. You just got to work harder not to mess it up because uh, those sites basically dictated the golf courses. And it took a lot of engineering, as you say, Derek, but it also didn't require a lot of earth moving because we had plenty of land. And if, if I may, and people ask this to me all the time, Reese, and, and I got to ask you, would you rather have the property at Atlantic and Long Island or Cascada? Well, who do you want me to upset first? <laughs> uh, okay, then you could, you don't have to answer the question. <laughs> well, I, I think I answered it before. Danny Wade was a phenomenal friend and client. Lowell Shulman was a phenomenal friend and client. And we didn't, we didn't stop at anything to make those wonderful, enjoyable, playable, really championship golf facilities uh, that a lot of people have enjoyed and got a lot of pleasure out of. So no I think they, they're different types of deals. Cascada was a diff- more difficult project to work with. Uh, Atlantic, we had to do a little more creation. And 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 I told Derek, uh, I've told Derek before when I, when I saw the holes at Cascada, I just was waiting to come around the corner <laughs> to see what else you had done. <laughs> it was like, all right, what's what's coming up next? Because individually, those holes, when you stand on the tee, you're like, how did they do this? How did they do? This? That's the whole key, though. I mean, that's that, that's got to be a great compliment. That's what you want the golfer to be thinking when they play. You know, what's next? I can't wait to see what's around this corner. And it's it's resonated, and and uh, they paid for that, um, and it cost a lot of money to build. And we never really knew how much because um, MGM is a public company, so they never really published how much it cost. Um, but uh, it they sold it for a seventeen million dollar profit when they sold it to Caesar, so they did okay. Wow. Not bad. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Reese, I'm wondering, here's just a very kind of a basic question, or maybe it's not, but I I think a lot of people are curious. You know, you started working in the 1960s when you joined your father's practice, and you went out on your own in the early 70s. What's the biggest difference you see between your early years as as an architect and a designer versus where we are at this moment in time? What's, is there is there one or two things you can put your finger on that when you reflect back on, you think, wow, it was really different when I started? Well, when I started um, in the mid-60s, uh, there wasn't much money in golf. It was really still a game. It wasn't a business. Right. And, um, I, and I built two top 100 golf courses for half a million dollars, uh, uh-huh. Arcadian Shores and Chanticleer Course at Greenville. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. And, uh, you know, so there wasn't much money put into these golf courses. But in the beginning of my career, uh, we were able to find really good sites to work on. And uh, then a little bit later, uh, when the, they became a lot more real estate development golf courses, um, the golf courses were relegated to the lowland, so we didn't have as good drainage. Uh, and so after that, then the environmental laws protecting the wetlands got us back up to the high ground so we could use the ground game again. Um, and then, uh, you know, Tom Fazio and I really were very fortunate that we were designing in the era that we did because golf was booming and people wanted something really special. And we were given 
a lot of great opportunities um, to work on some incredible pieces of ground like Ocean Forest and Nantucket and, uh, uh, you know, Atlantic um, Red Stick in Florida. My God, Red Stick yeah. is one of my favorites. Um, so I, I, I was very lucky that I built one called Hammock Dunes that I got to take you to, Jim, because it's it's so natural. It's not funny. You don't you wouldn't even know we moved an ounce of dirt. And we really did. But uh, I think Mackenzie used to talk about disguising the work to, so that people would say, my goodness, you were so lucky to have such a natural site. I think we did that in Hammock Dunes and Red Stick. And Reese, I'm going to hold you to that. Uh, I'm going to want to see Hammock Dunes. Now, uh, the same for what Nicholas said to me at, at Sabonic. He said, Jim, you got to see Muirfield Village. And so as soon as we were done with Sabonic, I got on the plane and went to see Muirfield Village. Uh, uh, Mr. Nicholas was my host. And he was right. There was that feeling of, of, of what Nicholas was proud of doing. And now I'm going to hold you to go in to see Hammock <laughs> Dunes. That's for sure. Okay, well, Hammock Dunes has no houses. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, that, I can't. I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> okay, Reese, where did you, you build know, Hammock Dunes? That was the second course there, right? Didn't Didn't Tom Fazio do the original course? Yeah, he did the ocean course that really where all the real estate is, and then they and then you're back crossed. up in the in the interior and in like the along the uh, the intercoastal marshes inside. No, so we're really yes across the uh, in, intercoastal and. Uh, just it was a a really virgin, beautiful piece of natural ground uh, where, again, we had to find all the holes. And we got some long views across the marshes. Uh, we had to find the holes between the wetlands. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, it was a second golf course, but there's no housing on it. And it's it's an unknown, wonderful golf experience because they don't promote it and it's private. And, um, you know, they do well with the real estate. But. It's never. It's they had the uh, Florida State open on it last year and did did very well, but it's just not promoted. Is that okay? And is that okay with you that it's not? Don't you want to show people uh, that that that's that lay of the ground uh, golf that you can do? Oh yeah, but uh, you know it's interesting. If if somebody does well and they sell a lot of real estate, they don't need to spend much on advertising. <laughs> Fair so. enough. Fair enough. <laughs> Hey, Jim, you know, we've had a lot of talks on this podcast, and I've never asked you this question. It, it, what Reese is talking about at Hammock Dunes reminds me, would you be interested building a golf course in an environment like that? You know, you've spent a lot of time building on, on really nice sandy sites, not exclusively, but you've had a lot of experience in that regard. Would you like to take on a challenge like that? You know, that's a great question. Uh, I could, and, and Reese could say the same, same thing, uh, I have been very fortunate to have these wonderful sites. I, not, I am not going to deny that. Could a site like you're just describing be a challenge that I would be willing to accept? Great point. I'd have to walk the land. But I do know, uh, working with Pete, uh, Reese, working with Pete, he always taught me about drainage. He sent me to Old Marsh to figure out how to, how to make the drainage work uh, when I went down to Florida to look at that. Could I take on that challenge? Great question. I'd have to see the site. I'd have to do a lot, a lot of research. I'd have to go see what other people had done. But 
I can't say that I would be as successful as others, but I sure wouldn't, well, I sure wouldn't turn it down. But Reese, how much harder was it to do that versus than some of your other sites that you've worked on? Well, I got more sugar bites and I found more ticks. <laughs> um, That's for sure. <laughs> uh, well, yeah, we had to rely on the aerial maps. We had to worry, rely on the infrared maps. Um, we had to find the holes and we, it was a wooded site. So we had to clear it. We had to avoid the wetlands and we had to fit the par threes in where the wetlands were. And uh, that's why I'd love for you to see it, Jim, because it wasn't easy. Uh, you know, the, the sites that are easier were, were the unfold naturally to you almost instantly. But this, this is a, a site where you had to find the holes and, um, and then adjust the holes. Um, so, I, I, it's, it's much like you work. Uh, you have to work on the land. You can't do it by plan. There's too many people who think that golf courses are built by plan and they're not, they really are built on the ground. And that's why you really can't look at an, uh, the original plans of any architects and assume that's what was on the ground. That's a great question. And I'm so glad you went down there, Reese, because people always say to me, well, look at this Alistair McKenzie routing or look at this, Seth Rayner routing, uh, it shows uh, this particular bunker or that particular green site. And Reese, you brought up exactly something I've been wanting to talk about for a long time. Don't believe what you see. It doesn't always happen the way you draw it. You sometimes have to fix it in the field. And so when you put up, how would you have liked to put up a, a plan of hammock dunes as compared to what you actually built. Actually, I'd probably burn the plan now. (laughs) (laughs) And see, Derek, that's my struggle when I restore old golf courses. I have to rely on some drawings, some ground photos, some aerial photos, because sometimes Rainer ran into rock. Sometimes McDonald, sometimes McKenzie didn't build what they drew. And Reese hit it right on the head. You know, I'm going to burn the drawing because it has nothing to do with what I built. And that's okay, but just don't get locked up into those plans. Wasn't that the issue at Eronimink during those, you know, what they've done over the last 20 years is there was evidence of what was built by aerial photographs, but then Ross's original plans didn't have these uh, clusters of bunkers. They were more like one large bunker, but it was... So then you're trying to interpret, well, do we go by what Ross intended? Because he hears his, the drawings are right here or what was actually built. And was Ross there to oversee it? Did he know what was going, you know, like that? So you write to illustrate your point. That's an example. Well, McGovern was there. Basically, uh, McGovern Hatch did uh, a lot of Ross's work. Right. And McGovern lived in Philadelphia and he... Basically, they took the original plan. The original plans were probably developed in Piners, but then McGovern basically built that golf course. And so the plans have no bearing on what McGovern actually built. So when Ron Pritchard went back into Restored, he rebuilt what McGovern had put on the ground. And then recently, when it was restored again, they went to the old plan. So there's two sides of the story. Who knows what Donald Ross would have done if he'd been there more? Maybe he would have kept up with his plans but there are really two ways to restore that golf course. And, and there's Reese, the, there's the a bone of contention there in that, but Ross yes. did end up admiring the golf course ultimately. 
Well, um, you know, Ross is a very interesting case because uh, he cranked out so many golf courses and he didn't see a lot of them. But he had McGovern and Hatch who really helped. And then he had, in 1929, he had 29 job foremen on different jobs when, when the crash hit. So um, he had a lot of people that were following his plans and doing a very good job. Reese, have you ever thought about documenting your work after you have been done so that there's no misinterpretation of what you or your father had built as compared to what you had drawn? Um, I have to some degree, and I guess now you could probably do it more easily with the technology that we have. Um, and But the only constant in golf course architects, or, uh, Jim, is that someday it's going to be changed. Okay, that's the constant. And uh, whether, I mean, the great thing about Bethpage Black for me was that it was a public golf course built during the Depression. And everything that was built originally um, and designed by Tillinghast and, and built by um, uh, Burdick um, was left intact. Although there were trees growing in the bunkers. And it, it had really gone into really uh, disarray. Um, the, it hadn't been changed like a private club over the years. So it was easy to restore Bethpage Black and enhance it and lengthen it, make it better. But we had all the features staring us in the face when we redid that. Reese, was there any kind of, you know, greens evolved just through maintenance and top dressing, things like that? Was was there any evidence at Bethpage that you came across, any sketches of original green contours? How similar do you think they are now to when they were built? Well, you bring up a very good point because these, with all the top dressing, greens are probably a foot or more higher than they were before. I agree. Uh, I agree. So that all changes so that uh, when we go back like a Daniel Island to refurbish the greens because they got black layer in them, uh, we had to take the greens back down to the original grade, and we found like uh, eight inches of uh, increased elevation when we took them down. So um, I I think everything does change by the maintenance practices. Um, Brookline was one of my favorite projects of all time, but and that was that's when I introduced restoration uh, to the golfing world because a lot of greens were changed by a. a a New England architect and had no bearing on the original style. All the greens had become round and all the little corners uh, were lost. So we took the three greens that had been rebuilt, took the sod off of them, and then we put all the corners and all the original shapes of the greens back on the other 15 greens. We got our old photos out. We found where the chocolate drops were. We put them back in on 17. We found out where all the bunkers had been abandoned. We took a backhoe and dug a hole and found sand. So um, that was, but we didn't restore everything. We just restored what needed to be brought back in time. But we also lengthened the golf course because the U.S. Open is going to be played on it. Um, so there's, th that was a real restoration because we, we had the old photos and the old maps um, to do it. And uh, 17 green is on the, that's the, the, the green that um, Justin Leonard made that incredible putt. Uh, that, that's, uh, we, that's the only green that was relocated because Clyde Street was expanded and they had to move it to the right. And so, see, the plans were, in some cases, helpful. But in other cases, as you said, Reese, 
golf courses change, people change them. Is there a point in time that they should be preserved? Or as I've told people, no golf course is original. They've all been changed. Is there a point in time where clubs should say, okay, this is, this is it. Let's preserve it from here on out. Or do you, should we allow them to evolve? Uh, well, I have, they have to evolve. Um, even when they try to preserve what was a, the original intent, they've still relocated the bunkers, <clears throat> especially the fairway bunkers. Um, they add length. They change the fairway lines. Um, they may even add an additional bunker that, uh, I mean, like at Beth Page Black, Tilling has himself said he wanted to have elasticity. Well, he stole that from McKenzie, that term. But he said he wanted to have elasticity, and we utilized the elasticity that Tilling has left us because he knew the ball would uh, go farther. And even in McKenzie's or my father's time, they were all worried about the ball going too far. It's nothing new. Uh, so the golf courses, if they have enough land, you can bring them into today's play. But you can restore most of the features. You can restore the style. At East Lake, we restored the style because that was a – we restored Donald Ross style. And basically, Donald Ross designed the other golf course and just came over and gave our golf course a glance. But we restored it back to, to Donald Ross style. But And it, it was not really – doesn't resemble the old course because the old course had double greens. So we, uh, we had to kind of select which green uh, we would use. And I would go around with Charlie Yates and Tommy Barnes and uh, Charlie Harrison who played with Bobby Jones. And we discuss which green to use and which green and how the holes that used to play and where, what tree they got behind when they were playing Bobby and how they made this phenomenal shot. In fact, they probably heard more about, how they beat Bobby Jones every once in a while than I heard about the golf course. But uh, <laughs> I learned a lot from the old timers. And you see, Derek, it's not that easy. It's, it's, it's more complicated when somebody says, well, you just didn't get it right. Well, what part of right did I not get? And, and just by listening to you, Reese, talk about, you know, what was important, some of the golfers interaction with you, uh, the pictures that you have found, what part is right, and who decides what is right? Plus, Jim, um, we really, even though we look to the past, especially for the style and the design intent, we've got to also look to the future. And did your dad, when he was working on his golf courses and, and when you were working on yours, did you know that somebody later would come down and, and change it for the for the future, and were you okay with that? No, I never thought that when I was 25 years old. I thought I was building the perfect golf course. <laughs> In fact, when I was 25, I knew more then than I don't than I know now. <laughs> You've been hired quite a bit, Reese, to change your dad's golf courses. <laughs> well, um, yes, but don't forget that um, he had to build his golf courses with very limited budgets. Um, I mean, he built um, Atlanta Athletic Club that I redid for, he built 36 holes for $750,000. He built the Duke University golf course uh, where I played in the NCAA championships for Yale um, for $250,000. I didn't play very well uh, in that event. 
And uh, I made the Associated Press headlines, Dad's course too tough for son. <laughs> uh, and uh, I had to go back to school the next year and get ribbed by all my classmates. But um, then I went back when my daughter went to Duke and um, rebuilt that golf course um, to, to the point where they had another NCAA championship. So, um, yeah, I, I, it all evolves. And um, I think – uh, right now that I bargain who runs the golf operation there, uh, we're looking at even making more changes to Duke's course because you have to keep up with the times. And I think Jim brings up the point. We are restoring the style and the character, uh, but we just have to keep up with the, the game as it is today. And, and Reese, some people have asked me, you know, when do you decide to, to take a job when you're going to restore it or, or what kind of style do you look for? And there's a lot of things that I look for, but when I look at a golf course like one of my favorites that your dad ever did, the Air Force Academy Blue Golf Course, sometimes I think it's timeless and that nobody should touch it. What do you think? I've never been there. I should go. Um, but uh, see, he... He had some Jim Rabinas working with him. He had some really good construction guys. Yeah. And uh, a guy named Bill Baldwin is the guy that taught me how to build golf courses. And he worked on that job. And, and he was a phenomenal builder of golf courses. My, uh, my mother called him Michelangelo on a bulldozer. Wow. Uh, and um, so that's why the Air Force came out so well, because of his construction people. And I think that's what, uh, you have been, you've done yourself. You've sort of controlled the destiny of the creation by being on the site. And um, it, I, I think that's what he did at the Air Force Academy. And he was very pleased with it because he was very close to that job because he had some, uh, uh, there, there's, a, there's a couple of the hierarchy of the Air Force um, that uh, were very close friends of his. I can tell you that it, to me, it is timeless even though it's at 6,200, 6,300 feet, it's setting in the forest of uh, the black forest is just, I hope that nobody ever decides to do something to it. Another favorite of mine is the Dunes Club in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, but I've watched them kind of pick at it slowly. I just think to myself, sometimes you just don't have to touch them, Reese, but as you well, said. Yeah, but I'm the one that's been doing that, so. Uh, and you're, but we, we converted we converted the greens from, uh, you know, in, in in different to different grasses. Yep, I know. Um, and um, my dad, when he he made changes to that golf course, and um, I used to play in the golf riders, and um, he he changed some fives to fours and fours to fives. Really? So he made a lot of those early changes himself. Okay. Uh, the on the 18th hole, um, he um, he converted that uh, from a par five to a par four because uh, it was a downhill slope to the pond, so you couldn't lay up. Uh, and it turned it into an average par five into a great par four. But that's because I told him I couldn't stand the hole, and so he actually <laughs> changed it. <laughs> Reese, how often? Often would your father visit a golf course, especially like in the, you know, in the late thirties into the forties, when he started to get a little busier into the fifties, I know it changed later in his career when he was a little bit more spread out, I guess you could say generously. 
in those early days, how often was it customary for him to go see what the work, how the work was progressing? Well, it wasn't as easy to travel in those days. Uh, when he did Peace Tree, he was there all the time. Right? He never, because he, Bobby Jones was our family hero. Um, and when he worked at Augusta National, he was there all the time. At the Dunes Club, uh, we practically lived down in Myrtle Beach in the fourth, in the late 40s. Uh, and I was a little kid. Um, so I think early on in his career, uh, when we're coming out of the Depression and Second World War, um, he spent a lot of time on his projects. Then when he expanded around the world, it was much harder to do. So Cabell Robinson would do all the European stuff. Roger Rulwich would do most of the uh, U.S. stuff. And my brother and myself, when we were with him, would work on a lot of the projects, too. And then like the Robert Trent Jones Trail, Roger basically did all that. Right. Yep. I often think to myself, Reese, that I've been very lucky. I didn't have a father that got me, that, that led me down the path of, of design that I was kind of free to think about whatever I wanted to think about. Could you see yourself designing golf courses if you hadn't been dragged to every golf course across the country when you were just young? Well, um, my mother uh, was really the one that influenced me the most. And um, she didn't want me to um, really choose a profession until I went to college. And she wanted me to get exposed to many different areas of, of interest. And so um, I went to Yale and it wasn't until my junior year that I decided uh, that I wanted to go into golf course architecture. But at that time, people thought I was crazy because there was no money in it. It was just a, it was always a very, very small profession. There wasn't much money in it. So I went, I took all the courses to get into the Harvard school of design and I didn't learn much there. I really learned mostly from Bill Baldwin and my father. Um, but um, I think my mother wanted me to exp uh, think about going into different uh, businesses before I chose working for my father. Cause this, it's not easy working for your father, I'll guarantee you. In fact, there's an organization called the SOBs, called the <laughs> Sons, Sons of the Boss. And uh, yeah, it was sort of like a counseling group. But I didn't join it, but I should have. Because <laughs> I often think of it when I talk to Perry and PB, if it was the same thing for them, that no matter what they did, it was always Pete uh, over, uh, looking over them. I'm sure it had to be the same for you. It was. Um, but if you read uh, Jim Hansen's book, um, you know, the, that he wrote in my father's uh, biography, um, A Difficult Par, um, I broke off from a lot of his concepts earlier, I think, than my brother. Um, and I think it was good that I went out on my own 10 years after I started working for him because I really – uh, I really didn't want to make courses as difficult as he did. I wanted to have more shot options, more strategy. Um, so uh, I think it worked out well for me. I got the, I got the, and I think he was, in my mind, he was like one of the best in, in contouring greens, if not the best. And that's kind of what I admired, what you did at Sabonic with Tom Doke, because those green contours uh, really meant something. You weren't on the green, you weren't in the hole until you're in the hole. Yeah. And um, 
green contours are a form of hazard. Nobody thinks of that, but they are. And uh, they, they give you a reason to go for the pin and not just for the center of the green if you really want to make a birdie. I think you did a great job with that at Sabonic. In fact, when you and I and, and Garrett Boddington and Mike Pascucci would wander around, Pascucci would remember would say, I don't think this green's hard enough. This is easy. <laughs> I said, this is hard enough. I'll guarantee you. And like your 17th green, you had that little slope that went yep. uh, reverse slope, yep. you know, back into the bunker. I said, yep. my goodness, he didn't even see it. Yep. Um, so uh, I think green, I think that's what you guys did at Sabonic. And that's why my father was so good at it was green contours. And I think uh, routings and green contours are taken for granted, whereas bunkers seem to be the personality of an awful lot of golf courses. You know, Derek, Reese has got a damn good memory because he knows exactly what slope. <laughs> I know exactly what slope he's talking about on the 17th Sabonic. Now, on a high lofted shot, it's it's a, not facing you. It's facing away from the tee. And if you hit that slope, Reese knows where that ball's going. That's like what we were talking to Gil Hans about, how you, you guys get to this point where you can kind of feel <laughs> the, the degree of slope, the percentage with your, your feet. You don't have to and shoot it with amazing, the laser. It's amazing that Reese remembers that. And he is spot on. That must have been uh, that must have been jaw dropping when you saw that internal contour. Yeah, but uh, five years later, and I've had dinner with Pascucci, and he said, "You know, Reese, you were right." <laughs> yeah, I know the bump. I know the bump he's yeah, talking about. Right. Well, Re- did- Reese, you mentioned a minute ago that uh, you didn't want to make golf courses as difficult as as your dad. Was that something that that in your dad's career did he begin to make golf courses more and more difficult because i always get the impression that his earlier courses in the 40s and 50s especially were not particularly difficult uh, there was a lot of room off the tee generally but then maybe as the sites changed as as technology changed maybe that emphasis on difficulty began to kind of creep in uh, as epitomized by someplace like Spyglass Hill, where he was definitely going for the full-on challenge of the modern player. But is that something that that he he evolved or changed in over the course of his career? Well, you have to understand, Derek, and now that you're uh, becoming very significant again in the golf of Golf Digest, <laughs> the Golf Digest top 100 list uh, used to really emphasize um, resistance to scoring. And yeah, it started off our, as the most difficult courses in the country. That's right. It came out. That was the, and um, our clients wanted to make that list. So it, and uh, Tom Fazio and Tom Doak and I gave a seminar about five years ago at Pinehurst. And we all agreed that, that we were responsible for making some tests of golf pretty difficult in order to get into the top 100. So um, I think that might've been, a factor in why my father uh, did make some more difficult golf courses and all of us did. So it wasn't just him. Right. And do you think Reese that because of that, uh, I'll call it a, a, an evolution and change of design sixties to seventies. Do you think today the golf courses that we're doing, including the ones that you're involved with are more forgiving, more fun? Uh, yeah, they are much more. I mean, I just did the Breakers Ocean course over, and uh, it wasn't a big site. The three courses on the Palm Beach Island are really small sites, and it has become a home run. I mean, and I took Vinnie Giles and Dick Sitteroff there, and they were 
awed, awestruck by the place. And I'm more proud of having a, a tough job like that to create something special than I am when it's God given. And uh, I think it's very enjoyable, yet you still have to make the shots to shoot the score. And a lot of it, as I said before, on the angles of the greens, the shapes of the greens, the bounces into the greens, and the contours of the greens, even though it's not a long golf course. Did you purposely go to a smaller green as compared to what your dad was doing? No, no. I went there. I went to a bigger green. A bigger green. Got it. I'm just um, curious because some of the greens. I love Palma Valley in Southern California. I just absolutely love that golf course, and the greens are pretty generous. I was just curious if that evolution of Jones' design, Reese and your father had had gone from bigger greens, smaller greens, or it was it site specific. Well, no, he he is known for his large greens. Yep. Um, that was in part because he added a lot of length to his golf courses because he had a lot of championship golf courses um, that he was designing, either new golf courses or redesigning them. And uh, at that time, when you had a long par four, which was 470 yards, uh, you would be hitting a long iron into them. And he wanted to have enough uh, of a green to hold the shots because they're coming in kind of low and they, they didn't spin the ball like they do now. Correct. And uh, so that's why he built the bigger greens. And then he, within those bigger greens, he would have three or two sections. So there are small targets within a big target. But then there are other courses like Palma Valley and, and Duke and Williamsburg, Golden Horseshoe, where he had shorter golf courses where he built smaller greens. Because I think about, you know, uh, being typecast. Is that fair? That some architects are, are typecast of uh, what, they, what they're known for. Pete was obviously typecast for some of the things he was doing in the 70s and 80s. Was your dad, was Reese Jones typecast unfairly? Oh, I don't think I'm typecast like my dad was or like Pete was. Yeah. Um, Basically, if you go to Danzante Bay or Playa Grande now, you'll you'll see two coastal golf courses that look completely different. Yeah. And the bunker styles are different. Uh, the the lay of the land, the the way we handled the outlying areas, we we, we exposed the sand and the desert, Danzante Bay, and and basically Playa Grande, which has uh, ten holes on the cliffs on the ocean. Every hole has a a view of the ocean. It's it's a site like Pebble Beach. Um, there's no exposed areas. So I don't, I don't, I, I try not to be typecast. Um, I have a lot of uh, courses with larger bunkers than I have like this course I just did um, in Florida at Ballon Isles with small bunkers. Um, and then right now, I think you and I and all of us are sort of getting into more chipping areas around the greens. Yes, sir. Um, and we're reinstituting that. We're doing more of that. We just did that at Torrey Pines, put more chipping areas around the greens. Um, so uh, I, I guess to some degree what you're saying is that back in my boom time when it was me and Pete and Tom, Fazio, and Jack, they could go to one course or another and sort of identify whose it was by the bunker style. And I was always kind of pleased that they couldn't quite figure out whether it was me or not. So yeah. yeah. Because I have not seen Danzante Bay, is that correct? Danzante Bay, yeah. I have not seen it. I've seen a video of it. I've seen uh, flyovers of it. 
if I go to Cabo, is is that a must see for me? Well, it's, it's, you have to drive six hours north. Wow. <laughs> um, but it's it's in Loretto. It's in a fish. Okay. And there's two golf courses in the town. Um, but it's just, it's my Mauna Kea. It's my great coastal site that my father, my father just, when, when he, Mr. Rockefeller gave him Mauna Kea, he was ecstatic and he put in a major effort. And uh, Owen Perry gave me a wonderful opportunity at Danzante Bay. He gave me all the good land and uh, gave me the coastal, probably gave me the dunes land, gave me the cliffs, the mountains. Uh, you know, it was just a wonderful opportunity. And that's what you're saying, what Mike Kaiser did for you. Yes, sir. Uh, I think Owen Perry did that for me. Is it, would you say it is, I hate to say this, Reese, I hate to say this, is it your best? Well, no, it, I don't know. Um, it's I your was, most spectacular. Well, I think Playa Grande is just as Playa Grande is pretty special. Yeah, and, and so is Ocean Forest. Yeah. Um, so, you know, they're all different, and I would – you know, I used to say, people say, what's your best golf course? I said, you know, if if I told you, I'd have to shoot you. Well, and I didn't want to ask you that. <laughs> I, I don't like when somebody says, what's the best golf course you built? I don't like it either. But I've just, I've seen people rave about this place. I have not seen it, but it has to be, it has to be on the top of your list of cool places to hang out. Well, it is a top 100 golf course, but I'll probably never make the list because it's a remote area. And it won't get enough panelists. Um, and, you know, so same thing with Playa Grande. Both of them are destined to be top 100 golf courses if they can get the panelists to go there. So I'm, I'm, proud, I'm proud of both of those. Because I, I noticed on the layout of Danzante Bay that you got some centerline bunkers in there. I didn't see you do a lot of that early on in your career. Correct me if I'm wrong. No, you're right, but you'll see the same thing at uh, Playa Grande. Okay. You'll see the same thing at Ballon Isles. Um, you know, uh, it's funny when you – I did a lot of that Atlantic, and then they had me take them out. <laughs> so, so you never know. You know, the scattered bunkers. <laughs> Just when you think you haven't figured out. That's right. Reese, we were talking about style. We had Thad Layton on a couple episodes ago, and he was talking about – when we were talking about this, about Arnold Palmer Design Company's courses, th- there's a, a vast range of styles. I don't think you could ever pin them down. Maybe a little something here, the beach bunker, you started to see that a lot, the rock walls, a lot of or- ornamentation. But just in general, concept, themes, strategies, shaping, you know, you go from coast to coast, there's a lot of variety in there. And, and Thad speculated that was probably because, you know, during the 90s, especially they had different associates really in charge of the sites and then Mr. Palmer would come in and analyze it. But each of those associates perhaps had the ability to put some kind of an imprint on it. I'll ask you a similar question. What kind of collaboration occurs on your projects and in your office between you and Bryce or you and Steve or you and Greg or or whoever, whoever it may be, do they have the ability to kind of influence the, the way a golf course turns out in a, in a full rich way? Oh, they do. Uh, they're very much um, in charge of the construction of those projects. And um, we, it's a very collegial thing and we work together and uh, we kind of get the, we have a, uh, we're trying to get more of a style like yours now, Jim, with, with irregular lines, more uh, less formal lines than some of the bunkers, unless it's a 
course where you really can't afford to maintain those bunkers. Um, and I think uh, we're we're pretty much on the same wavelengths. But um, yeah, they've got a lot of freedom, and uh, they're doing a heck of a job. But I mean, uh, I've I've been going to Coral Ridge, which is my father's uh, own golf course. We're rebuilding that now, and um, I, I'm on the phone and on the videos with them every day. And I and I went to the site a couple of weeks ago, and I sent you that article, I believe, uh, that Michael Bamberg yeah, wrote right. about. Yeah, um, but um, it, it's and I think it's just like with Jim and Tom Doak. Uh, there's a lot of Jim in it. There's a lot of Tom in it. There, uh, so I, I think uh, that's what I was saying earlier on in this uh, program is that uh, every golf course is a combination of a lot of ideas, including the clients, including the owner. Uh, and it's, it's I, I think to some degree, Jim, we become uh, the Solomon to make the decision uh, of how the final product goes in. But we listen to a lot of people. And that's fair, Reese. We listen to a lot of people. Um, I'm curious if Mr. Jones, your father, listened to Bill Baldwin as much as you listened to Greg Muirhead, Steve Weiser and Bryce Swanson. No, oh, he did. Um, they, they were pretty much on the same wavelength and, um, yeah, um, I, I really believe, uh, that was a great team and there's a guy named Austin Gibson. And then I had a guy named Clyde Hall that's now redoing Briars Creek for me. Um, and, um, he worked for me for 25 years. And I mean, I, my wife could say, you know, if I, if I wanted Clyde to do something, I just grunt. He knew what I was talking about. (laughs) (laughs) Reese, keeping on this theme of styles and maybe as a as a journalist and the architectural editor, I have a little bit more of a a tendency to think this way or I feel like it's my job to try to identify trends if possible. But keeping with this idea of style, I wanted to get your opinion about the Robert Trent Jones trail in in Alabama. Obviously, what Roger and uh, Bobby Vaughn were trying to do there was uh, evoke your dad's style of design. How close did they come and what do you think of that? whole project well i think it's a sensational project it was overwhelmingly uh huge and uh roger who um i don't know if you've ever seen seen this book called golf at yale um those of us went to yale. max bear went to yale william langford went to yale uh roy die roger my brother myself there are a lot of golf course architects that went to yale but in this chapter on Roger, the compliment he received was that he really understood my father's design style and he really implemented it uh, the way my father was happy. So it was my father's style really done by Roger. And I think that's what made uh, the trail so successful. And I just wonder if all the people that have played the trail in the last, I guess it's almost 30 years now. So, I mean, millions, I'm assuming... I'm assuming it's millions of, of golfers have played that trail and the name Robert Trent Jones is on it. I wonder if they're getting a, f- a real picture or or if they come if they walk away from that experience of playing some of those golf courses which are purposefully difficult. I mean they were built to be challenging and memorable. Uh they wanted to make a statement this was the early 90s. Um I wonder if they come away with an accurate understanding or a perception of of who your dad was as an architect. Maybe they haven't seen any other Robert Trent Jones courses. I, I think about that, and uh, I'm not sure they're getting the uh, an accurate picture. They're certainly getting an impression, but I'm not sure it's an accurate one. 
Well, he, but he, uh, Pete Dye and my dad both built predominantly difficult golf courses. So um, I think it was a true reflection. However, the one thing about it, there's on such good pieces of land and they're so well done and, and they were so well run that that's extremely successful. And I've never heard anybody complain about the difficulty of those golf courses. People just enjoy going to the trail and they go back to the trail, uh, which is, I think, going to happen even more so now with the pandemic, that people are going to travel less distances and they're going to go to places they can drive. So I think the trail is going to do phenomenally well in the next couple of years. Yeah, I hope you're right. It's one of those places where people go uh, knowing a little bit what they're going to get into. They they go there for a specific reason. I don't want to say they go there to, to, to lose golf balls or get beat up, but if they if that happens, they kind of embrace it because that's the reputation. Yeah, and don't forget, uh, like at Sabonic, that's a hard golf course. And, it's a hard um, golf course. You're right. And, but, but I found a tee where I could actually have a good score. And I think that's the real credit to you guys, Jim. And you can build a golf course that can be thought to be one of the best tests in the world and at the same time find a tee where it can be manageable, which is sort of what I've done at Torrey Pines where they play 75,000 rounds a year of public golf. And when I'm there for a full day and I ask all the players that are hitting grounders, if they're enjoying the golf course, they say, absolutely, this is phenomenal. So I think, you know, that's what – Mackenzie used to say, if I could just build a golf course that gives somebody a lot of pleasure, then I'm a success. And I think uh, that's what the trail does. And that's what uh, a lot, uh, that's what Beth Page Black and Tory Pines does. Reese, you know, you brought up a point that we had a conversation with David Kidd and he said, when people look at the golf courses that, that, that I've built, the ones that are successful, the abandoned dunes, the original abandoned dunes, he takes pleasure in that, that people are raving about it. The people are dying to come back to play it. It's always full. You just spoke of that. Isn't that really the measure of success? Absolutely. Um, and um, I think that's what you and I are trying to do. We're trying to give our clients a successful product. And uh, we're also trying to give a great deal of pleasure uh, to the people fortunate enough to be able to play it. Um, in fact, I just wrote an article uh, for a Korean magazine because I just did the LPJ uh, International Golf Course over there. And um, so, but they really wanted to know about Beth Page and Torrey Pines more than anything. And then, so I had to write up those two golf courses because those are the two golf courses that resonate around the world as far as they're concerned. Right. And because they got a lot of press. And, and sometimes uh, I've, I've discussed this with Derek several times, Reese, that sometimes there's the, there's the little unknown that you're most proud of and it gets no press. You wish more people could see him. I know you're absolutely right. Like Hammock Dunes. That's what I said earlier. I, and, and when I took Ron Witten there, he, it's not unlike any Florida golf course you'll see, which really made him take notice of the golf course. Right. Um, because it's not a Florida golf course. It's right. distinct. It's a boutique design. Like, uh, you know, some golf courses like Pine Valley is a boutique. You see, Derek, you've got to start writing about those little Hold on a second. unknowns. I, I want to go back to this concept of boutique. <laughs> what is, what do you, what exact, can you elaborate on that, Reese? <laughs> it's, it's unlike anything else. 
it's unlike this Pine Valley was unlike anything else when it was built. And um, I would say uh, Sabonic is a bit of a boutique golf course too. I well, it it was competing with some tough neighbors, so you know how that goes. Yes. And I was building the bridge at the same time, and I made the golf magazine top on our list, but I never made your list, Derek, on, with the bridge. Okay. Um, but it was very fortunate. Was very, and, and you know what's great about the East End of Long Island, Atlantic, and the bridge, and Maidstone, and National, and Shinnecock. Everybody put in a major effort because it's just some of the best golf land you'll ever see. Agreed. Agreed. And I've always told Pascucci that Unfortunately, for a little while, he's always going to be the new kid on the block, the national Shinnecock right next door. But someday, Sabonic will be accepted with all the others. It just can't be today. Well, um, it's all individual opinion. And because um, everybody comes and um, they play around. But the great, I think one of the greatest pleasures I get is when people come and they play the whole Rota. And, they, and Atlantic is like number two uh, all the time. Shinnecock's number one. And uh, Atlantic is always number two hmm. uh, to all these guys. And that's, even, even being Avis, that's a pretty good deal. <laughs> Reese, uh, as we kind of start to, to finish up here, you know, you've had s- such a long career doing so many different types of courses, resort courses, private courses, public courses, international courses. Obviously, what you might ultimately be remembered for when your career is finally over is the influence you had over major championship golf. You and I have talked about this a little bit before too. Uh, all the different venues that, that you've had a chance to kind of prepare for whether it's a Ryder cup, a PGA, a U.S. open, uh, a women's open. How do you measure how successful you've been in preparing a, a course for a tournament? Is the, it, There's got to be a, a lot of different ways that you think about whether it worked out, whether it's the scoring, the winner, how satisfied the club was, the television exposure. There's a lot of different ways to measure success. How do you measure success for the job that you did? Well, my first U.S. Open site was Brookline. And at that point, Curtis Strange was the number one player in the world, and he won it. And then a lot of my events, like at Beth Page Black and Torrey Pines South, my goodness, Tiger Woods won them both. And he wins at Medina. He wins at Cog Hill. He wins at Eastlake. I, I think if you let, if the cream rises to the top on a substantial number of your championship redos, uh, that's really what you're trying to achieve. You're really not trying to keep them from making par or having a final score of 70 holes under par uh, or at par or above par. You're trying to really um, – be at the test that has the cream rise to the top. So I, I think that's always been my measure of success. Don't forget, you you do get criticism when you enter into uh, the championship area, arena of golf course design. As my father said when I did, when I started out doing a lot of that work, um, you will get criticism. He said, Reese, you have to have a thick skin. And uh, But when they ask me on the TV or the radio or interviews, what I think about the criticism, I said, well, what place did they finish in? And uh, usually those guys didn't do too well. And uh, But Tiger Woods has never, ever criticized one of my designs, which uh, I take as a real compliment. Reese, I've, I've thought many a times when I've worked for Pete, when I worked for Renaissance Golf Design, 
now that I'm on my own, people ask me, you know, where did you learn? What, how did, who was your mentor? What, where, where did you get your biggest influence? Other than your dad, what was your biggest influence? Was it, was it really Bill Baldwin? Well, Bill Baldwin, and this is why I think you're so um, qualified to design golf courses, because Bill Baldwin taught me how to build golf courses. And you have to know how to build a golf course uh, before you can really design it. You have to know what the land will give you. And uh, I think from that standpoint, yes, um, he probably had the most. And he, and he never had a child. He never had children. So he took me. I was the child he never had. Yeah. And uh, he spent a lot of time with me, and he was very good to me, and he taught me. And he used to. And I'd say, Bill, let's do this, this, and this. And this is when I was in my mid-20s. He said, now, Reese, that's really a very good idea. But have you ever thought about doing it this way? And uh, he never really criticized me, and he let me grow without being feeling I was uh, ineffective. Right. Um, but I think that what you do and what I learned from your St. Andrews episode on Derek's um, podcast is that you go around, you look at other golf courses, and I, I learn from that, and I, I, I look at them, and I, I learn from what I see and what I like and don't like. Uh, but I'd say the, I play a lot of golf with Pete um, and uh, Pete and I were friends and Alice let me hang out with Pete a lot. And, you know, she really sort of protected him. Um, but I played with him every winter for years um, when we were down in Florida and I would play with him uh, when he started uh, getting his dementia and, and I could sort of tell. And then uh, the next year was a little worse. And then I played my last round with Pete when he didn't even know who I was and he broke his age. Yeah, and every time he made a par, he said, "I made a par," but he yeah. didn't know who the, who we were. But crazy? the reason that Pete influenced me was he broke us from uh, the post World War II mold, where everybody started doing the same designs, uh, and let us sort of he, he he enabled us to branch out in a different way for all of us in a different manner. We didn't necessarily follow Pete's design, although I did when he was so successful. I was guilty of building a lot of pot bunkers at that time. Yeah. Um, but um, I think Pete influenced me a great deal as far as giving me the freedom to branch out and do my own style. That is so cool that you said that, Reese, because sometimes egos, you know how we all have them. <laughs> sometimes we believe that it's really all about what we're thinking, but we all know better that uh, people have helped us along the way. And that was so cool of you to recognize both Bill, who was a construction guy, a shaper, and Pete, uh, almost on the same page. Well, Pete was a wonderful guy. Um, yeah, I think we all miss him. I agree. Reese, He's one of a kind. You mentioned, uh, let's, maybe we'll finish on this one. You mentioned earlier, you, you said uh, we need to look to the future. What do you see in golf's future? specifically well, maybe golf let's keep it to golf design that's a big question it, it's it well yeah that's it's a huge question but um this pandemic is really um doing two things it's really um harming the private club that is dependent on outings and food service and the swimming pool and other activities that are now closed and but it's proving that the golf itself is a real dr 
it drives the clubs. And people are playing in droves right now. And if you talk to, uh, we're, we're doing this Torsdale course over in Philadelphia eventually when they gets going. But And I was talking to the pro there today. And he said he's never had as many rounds of golf uh, on his golf course. So I think this pandemic is teaching us that it's a very wonderful individual sport that um, people are anxious to get out and play again and again. And I've been working on the internet and on Skype and um, FaceTime and talking, but uh, I go out at night now and I play nine holes every night. Um, So, uh, and I'm really making sure I don't pull my arms down too fast. I got to bring those shoulders down. So, uh, I'm, and I'm actually having, I had a 37 the other night and I had 40 last night. So I'm doing okay. But I, I, I love the game and I think people are learning to love the game. I, so I think the future of the game itself is going to be quite healthy. I think public golf, like Karika Park that we did uh, near Oakland, um, is booming uh, now that they've opened the course again. So uh, I think we're going to see a lot of uh, public golf courses and the the private clubs, once they are able to open up their facilities, I hope will do well. It's just a matter of how the economy is working. You know, Reese, Derek uh, tends to get on this little box about uh, 12 inches high. and It's, and tall, it's talks, bigger than that. Come on. <laughs> and he talks about the what golf could bring back to the urban centers of the U.S. Well, well Jim, you know, Reese just mentioned Karika Park, which is – Right in Oakland, basically. Yep. You want to yep. talk about golf in an urban environment, a place that is really accessible and, and people can get to and show them a really fun, open style of golf. That's the model right there. I and, agree. And yeah. I apologize, Derek, if I said 12-inch soapbox. I, I didn't, I didn't mean it. 13, easy. <laughs> but, Reese, I saw your uh, – uh, is it Chuck Correa golf course? It was, well, it's called Chuck Correa, uh, but then – they changed the name after it became so good. Got it. Well, <laughs> I, I, so, it was so good they had to rename it. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> well, Derek, I, I walked the golf course during construction, and you are right. That, that is accessible to many, many people in the area. I wish Reese all the best. I haven't seen it since it's done. I will go back when I visit uh, the Bay Area again here shortly. I'm curious to see. And if you don't mind, Reese, Go play around and, and shout back at you when I see it. You got a deal. It's uh, it's it's very playable, and every caliber player likes to to play it. And it's uh, it's sort of like Tory Pines. After I did the latest redo last year, we did, got no complaints from the tour. They gave had a questionnaire, and every tour player said they liked what I did. That's very unusual. And same thing with Karika Park. Um, everybody loves to, to play it, and they play it over and over again. And um, it's it's environmentally properly uh, constructed also. Smart I public noticed. golf. That's what we need more of. I noticed yeah. that. Yeah. I agree, Derek. I agree. You got me You got me talking your, your soapbox. There we I'm go. There's room up here for you too, Jim. <laughs> Reese, thanks so much for joining us. Really appreciate it. It's always great to talk to you. And um, I hope every, I know all the listeners are going to enjoy that. That was some good stuff. Okay. Well, I appreciate it. Reese, thank you very much. Thanks for taking your time with me. I agree with Derek. Well, now you have to go to a lot of places with me. Man, Jim. I got a lot to cover. Yeah, were okay. you writing all these down, Jim? I hope but so. Yeah, I got them all down. Okay. I got them all down. <laughs> 
right, Jim. I think that was a really interesting conversation with Reese Jones. When you talk to Reese, you're never quite sure where it's going to go. And at least when I speak to him, I'm not ever quite sure what answer he's going to give or or how he's going to frame it. Something we talked about at the end that I that I think we do need to hit on is uh, I asked him about how he judges his own success about the work he's done on major championship golf sites, and he explained that that he thinks the success is does the best player or one of the best players of that era have success on the golf course that he prepared and you can argue whether it's the fundamental architecture of the golf course that enables that or if it's the the, the work and the tinkering that uh, Reese Jones or whomever does um, but the fact is that the best player in the world has often came out on top of of the work that Reese Jones on on any given major championship golf course you know, inch- I, I- yeah, well, and then I was just going to say, we're. I think that's interesting to note because we'll, there'll be sort of a case study because next summer or whenever we get to the next U.S. Open that's played at Torrey Pines South, yep, that yep. will really be just about the last golf course that a U.S. Open or a PGA Championship will be held. I think there's a Ryder Cup coming up at Beth, Bethpage, but um, after that, you get into at the U.S. Open sites uh, the Country Club, which. Reese mentioned he did the original work in 1988, the, the, one of, maybe one of the first true restorations. That was uh, his client, but now Gil Hans is working there. Then it goes to Los Angeles Country Club, Gil Hans, Piners number two, um, latest work by Bill Corr, although Reese Jones did do a major uh, renovation of that course leading up to the 99 Open, Oakmont, Shinnecock Hills, Pebble Beach. None of those U.S. Open courses are, are currently using Reese Jones to modify it or, or prep it. And then the PGA, it's... Harding Park now, Kiowa, Trump National, Oak Hill, that's Andrew Green now, um, you know, Valhalla, Aronimink, the new PGA Frisco courses. So so I don't know if Reese will get back into it, but we may have seen the end of the Reese Jones Open Doctor era. And I just think it's it's in, it's important to reflect back on that period and recognize that whatever was happening, great players like Brooks Kepka. And Tiger Woods did have so much success on the golf courses that Reese Jones prepped. You know, Derek, you often forget that for a long time, Reese was known as the open doctor uh, because, as you're saying, it's, it's kind of coming to the, to the end of that, that era. And so, Derek, when I look at golf courses, I don't think about them as uh, – designing them to to resist scoring I, I i look at them designing and building them to have fun so i don't know that i don't know that thinking that went behind those restorations renovations uh that reese was doing but it is coming to towards the end of of the golf courses that that reese was involved with and as you mentioned now uh, bill uh, bill Coor, and and Gil Hans are, are now touching those sites. I'll be curious to see how that evolution uh, comes about. Which players will excel? Will it be like Reese talked about? Some of the best players excelled in the golf courses that he was involved with. Interesting topic. I don't know much about it. I can't say that I'm really interested in it, but. Your note about Reese being involved with many of those is duly noted. Yeah, and I think it ties in with just the concept of architectural history. That is a story of golf architecture. Major championship venues are always, almost always played at some of the, the greatest architectural 
architecturally respected golf courses, you know, you think of the winged foots and the Oakmonts and the Shinnecocks, um, th- these great, great golf courses that have had these long histories of hosting tournaments. So there is some connection there. And it's always interesting to see when the best players go play there. That's how history is made. And Reese Jones was a major, major part of that history. And I, it'll be interesting to see what, if, if a Bill Corr touch or a Gil Hans's touch produces a different style of golf course and will, how will that will uh, play against the professional level game. And I know you're not, you're not interested in it, but I am curious to know if, if somebody did come up to you and say, you know, Jim, uh, we're going to have a, uh, a golf tournament on um, course X, Y, or Z, maybe a course that, that, that you've been involved with, but we need you to like kind of uh, do your magic on it so that, that the pros aren't <laughs> going to come here and light it up. And I know you don't care. You say the lowest score wins, and I really admire that that viewpoint. I agree with it. But at the same time, you know, if you're a if you're these golf courses, you don't. If you're Marion, you don't want the pros coming in and shooting fifty nines. That's just not what you want. So, so Reese was put in. A, I'll just bring it back to this. Reese was put in. You know, was always um, took on that challenge of trying to to uh, produce a golf course that was a major tournament worthy venue, and. You know, I, I think you can say as far as like the entertainment value and the results, he did a pretty yes. good job. Yes, I can't disagree with you. And would I say no? Most likely I would say no, nope, not yeah. interested. <laughs> I'll, I'll design for the member. I'll design for the for the everyday player. And it's not that I don't understand what good players need to challenge them. I get that. Uh, I studied a golf course, a Donald Ross course in, in, the, in the Carolina Mountains called Highland Golf Club, and I thought, you know, this could be an idea to challenge the best players, always giving their feet an uncomfortable stance, either ball below your feet, above your feet, down slope, up slope, and the Highland Golf Club does that uh, with regularity. So it's not that I didn't think about it, but obviously the request, the request by others of Reese, of Gill, of Bill, to challenge the best players. You know, I can't say that I would be that interested, but they took on the challenge and I'm glad that I get to enjoy. You wait till you see Wingfoot. Holy mackerel. I played the recent work that Gil did at Wingfoot. You want to talk about challenging. Oh man, I, I can't even tell you, but Gil took the challenge. Him and Jim Wagner, the crew, the club, it's going to be shown off this this fall, I believe, and people will will enjoy it. I'll be curious to see the winner. Me, not so interested. Gil took on the challenge. Bill took on the challenge. Reese always answered that call. So good for all of them, and we'll see where it plays out over the next 10 to 15 years. We will. I played Torrey Pine South earlier this year, the week before the the Farmers Insurance Tournament there. And I'll just be honest with you, Jim, it was no damn fun. It was, <laughs> they had the, the the fairways in a little bit. The rough was up. I mean, it, it was brutal. And it, it gave me an, an entire another level of respect for the, the skill, as if I needed to have more respect for the tour players. But I mean, I couldn't advance the ball out of the rough at all. I mean, you get after about six holes, I I was just demoralized. And and I'm like, I'm a average to decent player. And I mean, I would just, I almost wanted to give up. And I know it doesn't play like that all the time. 
you know, that, that course does 70,000 rounds a year. It's one of the most popular courses in the world for people to come play. Usually the yeah. rough is down and so it's, it's a lot easier, but in tournament conditions, oh man. That and was, I don't mean to laugh at you, but uh, watching you struggle around that whole golf course, I would have laughed the whole time and said, <laughs> I would have yelled at you, Derek. Hey, Derek, why don't you just call it a day, Derek? <laughs> I might have because, too. Jim, let's go get a beer. <laughs> it's just those guys practice and practice thousands of hours of hitting it straight and hitting out of bunkers and landing the ball on a dime. I don't have that time. Derek, no. you were playing a golf course that you realized the skill that it takes to play in those championship venues. Not interested. Should go to, you should have went and had a beer. <laughs> <laughs> I did eventually, trust me, a couple. Good for you. <laughs> yeah, the, the, last, for you. the last thing I'll bring up that I thought was really interesting is the, the concept of uh, what is a good golf site? Uh, what is a good a good job? And, you know, Reese has worked on so many different sites all around the world. He's worked on fantastic sites. He's worked on sites that were challenging. Um, and it's just, it's interesting. And I, I brought this up about the Robert Trent Jones Golf Trail in, in Alabama, which uh, anybody who knows me, I've always spoken very highly of it. I've spent a lot of time over there. I'm a, I admire it. It's public golf. It's fairly affordable. It's exciting. It's really fantastic. But it's it can be really difficult. And some of those sites are incredibly steep. It's cart golf. Um, the sites were very dramatic and chosen for their to be that way because it it was intended to add a level of excitement and and something that you can't get wherever you're coming from. It was golf on steroids at a next level. Reese mentioned that those were great sites, and he mentioned that that Cascada in outside of Las Vegas was a, was a, a great site. And I think he's looking at it from a, a, a way that's different than what you or maybe Bill Coor would consider as a great site. You know, a great site to you it has a lot of subtle movements. It's not extreme. You can stitch all the holes together. It's probably a walkable golf course, etc. Sand. His idea, and I think a lot of people who came up gaining prominence in architecture during that era, consider maybe something that is dramatic as a great site, something that opportunity offers an opportunity to impress and wow the golfer, something that uh, showcases all the wildness of an environment. A friend of mine, Jim Ang, is, is the same way. He would probably prefer a, a golf course that has sweeping elevation changes. He can't build an, an 80-foot uh, T to fairway drop, but he, if he can find that, he can make the golf work on that site. So there's just there's a, a difference across a spectrum of what designers think are good sites and what you think is a good site. I think says a lot about how you view the business and what your personality is. Good point, and and I said it to Reese. Uh, I wasn't afraid to admit it. I said it to you uh, when I when I went to Cascada and, and I went to Shadow Creek. I was looking to see what what the other spectrum was of these these unbelievable uh, golf courses, the, the beauty, the, the views. I told you when I was at Cascada, every hole I came around, I was like, oh, what am I going to see next? And I was like, wow. And it, just, <laughs> it just kept hitting me with right. like stunning views. But it brings me back to beauty and utility in George Thomas's book, Beauty and Utility. And if you don't mind, I'd like to read this to you. Yeah, let's do it. I quote, in golf construction, art and utility meet. Both are absolutely vital. 
One is utterly ruined without the other. On the artistic side, there is the theory of construction with a main fundamental that we copy nature in this all seem to agree. The contours of our tees, of our hazards, of our greens should accept when otherwise necessary all melt into the surrounding land and should appear as have always been present, end quote. And so when I went to Cascada and I walked around that site and I toured it, he, Reese Jones, is right. Some of the rock outcroppings could have been interpreted as a dune. The, the beauty in which he tied it into these valleys and, and meandered around the property, it was stunning. It was stunning. So Thomas talks about beauty and utility. Every architect finds that beauty, finds that utility, and then applies it to their setting. That's the difference between architects. Mm -hmm. Thomas talks about it, and I had to pass it on just so you know that it hasn't always been something new. This has been going on for 100, 120 years. You know, it's interesting if you go back and read what writing there is from the architects who came out of World War II, you know, guys who were in the in the 50s and 60s, not just Trent Jones, but guys like Jeffrey Cornish and Robert Bruce Harris and Jim Harrison. They talk about building golf courses that do exactly what that quote says, blending into nature, like looking natural. And yet we look at those golf courses now and we don't think that. We generally don't think that those golf courses were mimicking nature. They... I've always thought it was part of a process. They were learning how to use machinery and different size machinery and maybe with different instructor or, or operators who weren't, you know, were learning the machinery too, how to build it, use it on golf courses and kind of learning their way on, on how to blend into nature. And it, but it really hasn't been until, you know, the Sandhills era that builders and Designers have gotten really, really good at, at blending golf courses into nature. It happened before that. You know, you could look at like Tom Fazio at um, sure in South Carolina at, at his um, Wade Hampton wild wild dunes wild down dunes. in the coast. You I know. love Wade. I love Wade Hampton for the same reason: the beauty mm -hmm. and tying in yeah into the surroundings. Yeah. You're right, but it's always it has been a goal. But it, I guess in the execution, it hasn't always it hasn't always shown through. And then you, then there's also a, plenty of evidence of, of where that hasn't been an ideal. You know, Pete Dye wasn't really trying to, in some of his courses, he wasn't trying to, to look at, make it look natural and, and indecipherable from nature and, and blending in. It looked pretty avant-garde at times. So it's, it's a, it's a swinging pendulum in a way. We just happen to be in this, in this era now when that that look and building a golf hole that looks like it it arose naturally out of the ground is kind of like the highest ideal. And you know, Derek, when you talk about the look, that's a podcast all in unto itself. The look. What do I look at? What do you look at? What captures our imagination? What interests us? What look are we looking for? if you know what I'm saying. And so when I went to Cascada, wow. When I went to Palma Valley, wow. When I went to Atlantic Golf Club uh, uh, in Long Island, uh, the bridges with Reese Jones, you know, all of these sites were, were so different. And yet 
he was trying to capture that design within that surrounding. And it is stunning. It is stunning when you look at the whole individually. But how do you quantify what that look is? Hmm. Well, Reese got five hours. I know, right? I'm trying to think, do I want to, do I want to even go there? Let's just say this, someone like Reese Jones, who is really the, the link between modern golf and the, the golf of his father's era. He, he's really one of the, the, the important uh, connections to agree that he's, he's, yeah, he's worked across that, that entire timeline and he's changed styles. He's, he's experimented in all of it. He's seen all of it and done all of it. So whatever mode he chooses to work in, uh, he's been valued. He's been successful. Clients have, have always sought out his work. The USGA and the PGA of America have sought out his work. He's been one of the most successful architects that the business has ever known. So it was an honor to speak with him, really. It's always great to get his perspectives on things because he does come at the business, I think, a little bit from a little bit different angle than, than you do. And it was interesting to hear you two uh, kind of talk to each other and kind of figure out what kind of language that you could speak with each other. There was a great amount of respect, and it was, it was uh, uh, great to just hear the two sides of it kind of bounce off each other. He was such a nice, he's such a nice guy. Not was he was, he's such a nice guy. I remember him coming to Sabonic with Garrett Boddington, walking around, looking at what we were doing. I, I and, and what caught my attention with Reese was that he was so respectful of Mr. Baldwin, Bill Baldwin, who worked uh, building golf courses, how, how he, that was his mentor. You know, there's more to Reese than just uh, uh, what you read in a, a magazine article there's a lot more to Reese. Such a nice man. I'm going to search out his other golf courses. And when he told me that one of his biggest influences, Bill Baldwin, the construction guy for yep. Robert Jones Sr., mm-hmm. I was like, there's way more to Reese and his influences and, and his mentors. Uh, he has not forgotten where he came from. Yeah. And, and he mentioned that, you know, you can't be slavishly devoted to, to plans and blueprints when you're building a golf course, it's got to develop in the field. I wish you could, I wish you would have gone down that path a little bit because um, that that's something to explore and, and to see how he kind of modifies his design ideas and lets them evolve because that's obviously what the, the way that you came up with Renaissance, the way Bill Coor works, the way Gill works, the way some of the most prominent architects right now are working and, and Reese has that connection with them. Um, maybe if we ever talk to him again, we can, we can go down that avenue a little bit. Well, I, and I've told you one of my one of my favorite stories with Pete Dye at Arizona State University. The we were getting ready to go for our walk, and the engineer pulls out a set of plans from behind the seat in the truck, and he said, "Son, we won't be needing those today." Yeah. <laughs> that's it. <laughs> I, and that's that stuck in my brain forever. Not today. Maybe tomorrow. Just not today. Well, that was a treat to be able to, to speak to one of the great ones. Reese Jones is a real gentleman. As you said, uh, he's one of the nicest guys in the business. Agreed. Thank you, Derek. Uh, nice man. I, I look forward to seeing him on site somewhere sometime. Excellent. Thanks, everybody, for listening. And we'll be back with another episode of The Salon very soon. Cheers. Cheers.